Exodus chapter 29, beginning in verse 7. Then you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. With four kids of my own, with three more by marriage, now with seven grandkids, over the years I've gotten some really, really nice Father's Day gifts. One year I got a fungo bat. Now, if you don't know, this is what a baseball coach uses to hit grounders and pop-ups to his players. And that fungo bat, it's been a real workhorse. That was a great gift. Another year, my wife helped out my kids and purchased me a riding lawnmower. Now, that was a really, really big deal. And once, my boys got together and purchased me a metal toolbox for the back of my pickup truck. Again, another great, great Father's Day present. Well, recently I heard of one dad whose kids all got together and they bought him a shotgun ride in a pro stock car. Now, how cool a gift is that? Yet as appealing as these gifts might sound, here's what I want this year for Father's Day. I want oil. And I know what you're thinking. You've gone nuts, Pastor Sandy. That's bizarre. He wants oil for Father's Day, but when I say oil, what are you thinking? Some of you are assuming that I'm talking about motor oil, that I want to change the oil in my truck. Others of you figure that I'm headed to the beach, that I'm going to come back all bronze, that I need some tanning oil. A few of you who don't know me think that I've taken up cooking and that I need some vegetable oil, God forbid. Or that I got a squeak around the house and I need a can of lubricating oil. But that's not what I'm interested in. When I tell you I want oil for Father's Day, I'm not referring to motor oil or tanning oil or cooking oil or hair oil or three-in-one oil or linseed oil or lemon oil. What I want for Father's Day is the oil of the Holy Spirit. And this is the one gift that none of my sons no matter how rich they become, will ever be able to afford. For only God's Son can pay for my forgiveness and make me right with Him and obtain for me the Holy Spirit. For the last 33 years now, with all my heart, I've wanted to be a good dad, a godly dad, a father who models my heavenly father. Now I want to be a good granddad. And to do either... I need the oil of the Holy Spirit. Usually the initial impression we glean of our Father in heaven, and often the most lasting impression comes from the man on earth that we call dad. That's why to reflect God to our kids, a dad needs supernatural help. This is why a dad, and now a granddad, If I want to be filled and overflowing with wisdom and presence and power and love, I need the Holy Spirit. You know, throughout the Bible, God gives us pictures of the Holy Spirit, various idioms and symbols that are associated with the Spirit. These spiritual snapshots give us insights into the nature and ministry of God's Spirit. You see, a picture is worth a thousand words, and this is particularly true of God's Spirit. The Bible portrays the Holy Spirit as a dove, as wine, as water, 
as fire and as wind. You remember at the baptism of Jesus, the Spirit descended upon our Lord as a dove. A trademark of the Holy Spirit is his gentleness, his sensitivity. He has nurturing instincts. The Holy Spirit also brings life in us, sparks life in us. Uh, He creates the sparkle, the excitement of new wine in our hearts. It's been said, a drunkard starts out mellow, then he gets ripe, finally ends up rotten. Whereas a Christian filled with the Spirit starts out rotten, ripens with fruit, and then ends up mellow, living and abiding in the peace of God. Hey, the Holy Spirit is the believer's buzz. If you want real joy, a heavenly high, don't resort to distilled spirits. Rely on the new wine of the Holy Spirit. Jesus also spoke of the Spirit as water. You remember what he said in John chapter 7. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus depicts the Holy Spirit as a rushing, cooling, refreshing drink of water. And the Holy Spirit is also seen as fire. He ignites the kindling of confession and repentance. Then he blows on it and sets it ablaze with a passion for God. When the Spirit was poured out on the first disciples in Jerusalem at Pentecost, little flickers of fire were seen dancing over the heads of the disciples. The fire over their heads was a metaphor of what was occurring in their hearts. From Pentecost, the revival spread like wildfire. And of course, in John 20, it's been our text now every Sunday for the last month, Jesus breathed on his disciples and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also like a puff of breath or a fresh wind. And the move of the Spirit is like a windstorm. Remember, God portrays the Holy Spirit To us, like a dove, like a fine wine, like rushing water, like fire, and like wind. But there is another significant idiom for the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures, and that is the oil that flows from a freshly squeezed olive. Olive oil played a vital role in ancient Israel. It soothed tired and sore muscles. It cooled a flushed brow. It moistened wounds. It softened brittle surfaces. And likewise, the Holy Spirit does all the above for us. He soothes the troubled soul. He softens the calloused heart. He moistens or saturates a dried up imagination. He even cools hot passions and violent tempers. In the Bible, the sick are anointed with olive oil. Prayer is offered for their healing. Again, the oil speaks of the Holy Spirit and His ability to treat us and to cure us. You know, it's interesting when Jewish kings and priests and prophets were inaugurated for office, they were always anointed with oil. A ram's horn full of olive oil was poured over the head of the person. They were soaked in oil. An anointing always came with an appointing. In a sense, this is done today when a coach wins a big game. The players anoint him with Gatorade. You've seen it. The difference, though, is that the coach's anointing is celebratory, whereas a biblical anointing was anticipatory and preparatory. Olive oil was a symbol 
that what was ne- of what was needed to do a very important God-given job. You see, God's calling, whatever it is, is always big shoes to fill. But with God's calling comes God's equipping. And the olive oil dramatized the need for Holy Spirit power. And let me say, another huge God-ordained job is that of a dad. The appointment of a dad is a big deal. A lot now rides on his determination and his faithfulness. That's why a dad needs to be anointed. I wouldn't mind if a ram's horn full of olive oil was poured over my head and over the head of every dad here today, or at least a Gatorade shower of spiritual power. Wouldn't it be great if that was poured over the head of every dead here this morning? For we certainly need what that anointing represents, which is the power of the Holy Spirit. Realize the calling of a father is a bit of all three Old Testament offices. Part king, part priest, even part prophet. Every dead should be the king of his castle. If he gets out of line, the queen will be there to crown him. (laughs) A dad needs to be a benevolent monarch. He needs to take charge and rule, but to rule his house with kindness. Jesus is a king and a servant. That's the goal of a dad, to rule his subjects with their best interests at heart. A dad, though, is also a prophet. He's the one called by God to communicate God's word to those under his roof. God's ways are not man's ways, and it was the prophet's job to remind the nation accordingly. Likewise, a father's job is to both confront his kids with God's truth and to convince his kids of God's truth. A dad can't abdicate this role to mom. God makes it a father's job. He is God's spokesman to his family. And surely a father's role resembles that of a priest. Every dad should be a priest to his family. He brings them God's heart. He's willing to sacrifice for his family. In fact, priests may speak more to a father's role than either king or prophet. For a godly dad assumed a priestly role. He stood in the gap for his family. In the Old Testament, the priests were the overseers of Hebrew worship. They were the caretakers of the temple. Their primary function was that of offering various sacrifices to God. The Hebrew word that's translated priest is the word Kohen. I have a Jewish friend who's a believer in Jesus. Back when we were going to Haiti on a regular basis, Irv always joined us on our trips in order to cook for our team. His name was Irv Cohen. If Irv had lived in Old Testament times, he probably would have been a priest instead of a cook. Irv is a great guy, but he's an average cook. In fact, I told Irv once that I knew he was of priestly descent before I ever learned that his last name was Cohen because everything he cooked for us tasted like a burnt offering. (laughs) The Hebrew dictionary defines the word Cohen or priest as one who undertakes anyone's cause or stands up in anyone's matter, matter or labors in his cause. A Cohen was a mediator between two parties. He represented God to people, and he represented the people to God. The Latin translation literally means bridge builder. 
the priests built bridges to communicate God's word to people and to bring the people's needs to God. They proclaimed God's truth and they interceded in prayer. Today, in the strictest sense, there is no more formal priesthood. The priestly role was eclipsed by Jesus. The book of Hebrews refers to Jesus as our great high priest. He is the one and only mediator between God and man. Hebrews 2 verse 17 refers to Jesus as the perfect priest, both faithful to God and merciful to men. As the God-man, Jesus is our bridge to God, and he's God's bridge to us. With Jesus as our great high priest, we no longer need any other kind of priesthood. Yet in the life of a child, the priesthood of Jesus can be subsidized in part by the role of a godly father. For a father is also a bridge builder. Like a Jewish priest, dads also sacrifice for and intercede for and supervise the worship of their kids. A dad stands in the gap for his children in lots of ways. We represent God to them and we pray to God for them. Like a priest, every dad undertakes another person's cause. He feels for the trials and struggles his kids face. He seeks to bring his children hope and help and healing. A father stands up for his kids. He offers them moral support and practical help, protection and direction, provision and supervision. He labors for his kids in a million ways, often unseen ways. Most importantly, a good and godly dad stands up for his kids even while he's on his knees. I'll never forget an incident that happened at the ballpark when my youngest son, Mac, was just a toddler. I was coaching Zach, my older son's baseball team, while little Mac was innocently throwing rocks. Well, he accidentally hit a lady who was strolling around the park. She wasn't hurt. At the time, Mac couldn't throw with enough philosophy to break a window pane. But this lady got angry, and she refused to let bygones be bygones. Her husband was a foreigner. He apparently was from a part of the world where conflicts were settled with sword fights and kids were beaten in the town square. And he wanted me to chastise my son publicly. Well, I apologized for Mac. I told the man that I would correct him. I would take care of my business. But that wasn't good enough for this guy. He wanted to take matters into his own hands. I had to bristle up and physically step between Osama and my toddler. I thought for a moment there was going to be an altercation. He might have had a sword, but I had a baseball bat. And I stood my ground. Finally, he backed off. But man, that incident gave me a whole new appreciation for this phrase, standing in the gap. And this is what a father willingly does day in and day out. He stands in the gap for his kids, even if it threatens his own welfare. Every day, a dad stands between his kids and a hostile world. He resists the evil influences that are trying to attack his kids, while at the same time, he's forced to deal with their mistakes, unintentional and deliberate. And I've learned one important truth. It's a lot easier to sit on the sidelines than it is to stand in the gap. Often in the gap, you feel as if you're being shot at from both sides. 
The world is attacking from without while your rebellious kids are resisting from within. But a father belongs in the gap. You see, it's in the gap that his kids rub up against the world. It's where they grow desperate for God. In the gap is the most dangerous place to be, but it is the place where a kid learns lessons that end up shaping who they become. That's why a father belongs there. And this was where the Old Testament priest stood in the gap. The priest had a messy, bloody, grueling job. He was constantly squaring up with the people's sins. He would hear their confession, then he would take his knife to the sacrifice. And this is what a father does. A father who stands in the gap is not oblivious to the mistakes of his kids. He knows their failures, their shortcomings. But instead of condemning them and being embarrassed by their mistakes and hanging his pride on their performance, he's willing to get messy and bloody and dirty right down on the level with his kids to see that they're forgiven and to see that they're restored. A father loves his kids no matter what they do. Certainly a father should stand for God. A godly father never compromises God's truth, not even for his own children's sake, but he also stands with his kids. A godly dad, like a priest, prays for his kids and works tirelessly to restore them to God even when they fail. You remember Job? Job served his family as a priest. He was a priest to his kids. Job chapter 1 verse 4 tells us, Now his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Notice this. God, Job offered a sacrifice just in case his kids had sinned against God. He was concerned about his children's spiritual welfare. Here's a poem that talks about a father's priestly role. It's a dad's job to leave behind a legacy of faith to his kids, to build bridges of encouragement and support. The poem goes like this. An old man traveling a lone highway came at evening cold and gray to a chasm deep and wide. The old man crossed in the twilight dim for the sullen streams held no fears in him, but he turned when he reached the other side and built a bridge to span the tide. Old man, cried a fellow pilgrim near, you're wasting your strength with building here. Your journey will end with the ending day and you'll never again pass this way. You have crossed the chasm deep and wide. Why build you a bridge at evening tide? Well, good friend, on the path I've come, he said, there follows after me today a youth whose feet will pass this way. This stream which has been as naught to me, to that fair-haired boy may a pitfall be. He too must cross in the twilight dim. Good friend, I'm building this bridge for him. And this is what a father does. A father builds bridges that he knows his kids will need, that his kids will eventually cross themselves. He leaves behind a legacy for his kids. The priest was the people's closest link to God. Their knowledge of God's wisdom and love and mercy and truth was derived from their contact with the priest. The priest had tremendous influence, for better or worse. Because of him, the nation ended up loving God or avoiding God. 
And it's the same priestly power. This is the same sort of sway that a father has over the lives of his kids. A dad forms a child's impressions of God. How important is that? If you ever go to San Antonio, Texas, a must-stop for you is the Alamo. I remember my first visit there. I always wanted to see where John Wayne held off Santa Ana's army. Well, near the entrance to the Alamo, there is a portrait of one of its brave heroes, under which is an inscription. It reads, James Butler Bonham. No portrait of him exists. This is a portrait of his nephew, Major James Bonham, deceased, who greatly resembled his uncle. It is placed here by the family that people may know the appearance of the man who died for freedom. And understand No portrait of our hero exists either. Jesus died for our freedom, yet God has ordained for our kids to know Jesus by looking at their dad. Reminds me of the Sunday school class where the teacher asked the kids to draw a picture of God. One child, he portrayed God as a brightly colored rainbow. Another child drew him as an old man coming down out of the clouds. Still another child drew God with a strong resemblance to Superman. The best sketch, though, came from a little girl who said, I don't know what God looks like, so I just drew a picture of my daddy. And this is why I say, a father's role are big shoes to fill. For better or worse, a child learns about God by looking at the character of their dad. Which brings us to the text that I read to you earlier. Exodus chapter 29, the dedication of the first priests. Imagine Aaron and his sons. They're preparing and waiting for this day of dedication. The tabernacle was newly constructed. God had started a new work. Prior to this tent, this tabernacle, the heavens and all nature had served as God's temple. His sanctuary included the land and the sea and the sky. Everywhere was God's altar. But now God was constructing a footstool on the earth, a centralized location where men could come and sit at his feet and focus their worship on him. And God had chosen Aaron and his sons to orchestrate this tabernacle worship. Imagine how Aaron must have felt. God had communicated to Moses that he had selected Aaron's family as the priestly breeding ground. The Jewish priesthood would all sprout from Aaron's stock. A new day had dawned, a new place of worship, a new priesthood, even newly designed uniforms. Put yourself in Aaron's sandals. It's his dedication day. He's assuming a strategic office, wearing garments tailored to divinely inspired specifications. Aaron's blown away by what's happening to him. God has chosen him, even after that golden calf fiasco. Aaron had introduced idolatry to Israel, yet God had forgiven him and appointed him and still wanted to use him. He feels so unworthy, so loved, so honored. Who is he to live and work within the orbit of God's holiness? And now here in Exodus 29, it's his first day on the job. No wonder his pulse is racing. His heart is about to pound out of his chest. Aaron feels like a new dad the day he brings his child home from the hospital. He's happy and proud, but oh, he's trembling at the responsibility. 
Aaron is standing before God, about to become Israel's first high priest. Exodus 29 conveys God's instructions for dedicating these Hebrew priests. Read with me verse 1. And this is what you shall do to them to hallow them for ministering to me as priests. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers anointed with oil. You shall make them of wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket with the bull and the two rams. And Aaron and his son, sons, you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments, put the tunic on Aaron, and the robe of the ephod, the ephod, and the breastplate, and gird him with the intricately woven band of the ephod. In other words, he's getting dressed up for his duties. The ephod was a smock that was worn over his priestly robes. Attached to the ephod was a breastplate that contained 12 gems. Each of these precious stones represented one of the 12 tribes of Israel. The ephod hung from the priest's shoulders. It hung over his heart. The garment represented God's love for his people and our security in Christ. As Christians, God considers us jewels or precious gems and Joes, and Jacks, and Jills, and Judys. We hang from the big, broad shoulders of Jesus, do we not? That means there's nothing tentative or probationary about our status. We are, are as secure as the shoulders of Jesus, shoulders that bear the world and that bore the cross. The high priest wore this breastplate over his heart. It was a reminder to all God's people of his love for them. Verse 5 continues describing the priest's attire. You shall put the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. He also wore this holy headdress. The turban and crown were the final pieces in his priestly uniform. And by the end of verse 6, Aaron is all dressed up for dedication. Notice the priest is in full gear. The proper sacrifice is in his hand. He's been washed and cleansed with water. He's clothed in the right garments. The breastplate is hanging over his heart. His head has been properly wound and wrapped. You would think Aaron would be ready for his job. He's all spruced up, all decorated for dedication. He's covered and cleansed and clothed and conditioned and even capped. But there's one detail that remains. Apparently, all the preparations of the first six verses were not enough to ensure a good priest. In verse 7, God adds a detail. And you shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head, and anoint him. A priest was not ready for his duties until he had been drenched with oil. And here is the application for all us dads here this morning. Dad, you can trust Jesus as your sacrifice. Your thoughts and feelings can be washed with the water of his word. You can be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You can even wrap your mind with a turban of truth. You can invite God to be the head of your house. You can love your kids with all your heart. You can treat them as jewels and carry them on your shoulders. But all this is insufficient apart from the oil. You still need to be anointed with the power of God's Spirit. I once saw a Father's Day card that on the outside read, Being a dad can be expensive, time-consuming, frustrating, confusing, and emotionally draining. Then you open up the card, and on the inside it reads, actually, it's a lot like playing golf. 
God gave golf to the human race, especially to the male gender, to keep us humble. You know why they call it golf? All the other four-letter words were taken. (laughs) Golf is the most difficult game to master. Even the best players don't win every week. Trust me, some strange things, fluky things happen in a round of golf. And the same is true with rearing kids. Just about the time you think you got it under control, that you got your game together, Junior brings a note home from school. Or Missy wants to date some creep. Where in the world did she dig up him? Or the police calls with bad news. And suddenly you're right back where you were before the last crisis, on your knees crying for help. This is why every dad needs help greater than himself. You know, if you have young kids, I mean really young kids, I mean like newborn infant type kids, You might be living under the illusion that you have this parenting gig all down pat. You've listened to Focus on the Family every night. You've read all the best parenting books. Man, you know what to do. You're an expert on child rearing. Well, hold on to your hat, buddy. The teenage years are fast approaching. And very soon, you're going to be facing situations that you have no idea how to handle. And then comes those murky years. Oh, those murky years, the late teens, the early 20s, when you still have all of the responsibility but very little authority. How does that work? I mean, I've done more serious parenting after high school than I ever did beforehand. There are challenges at every stage of a child's growth. That's why the indispensable ingredient for successful parenting is the Spirit of God. He is the edge Every dad's need. The Holy Spirit is a father's secret weapon. As Christians, we know the battle we fight isn't against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual wickedness. We battle the flesh, the world, and the devil. And those are the foes that we face in our parenting. The flesh wants to cripple our kids. The world wants to draw them into temptation. The devil wants to try to finish them off. This is why every parent needs a spiritual arsenal. Conventional weapons are not enough. Hey, you don't fight a nuclear war with conventional weapons, and neither do you fight a spiritual battle with fleshly techniques. Hey, take all of the how-to books you want, all the self-help manuals. They're not enough. We need weapons that can counter spiritual forces. We need the power and gifts and wisdom and strength and love of the Holy Spirit. When I started out as a father, I believed that a paddle was my most important tool. But it didn't take long for my kids to harden. I noticed they hardened on both ends, both the seat and the head. Now I realize most, my most effective tool is prayer. Priestly intercession is a father's most strategic tool. Steve Farrar, he writes this of a praying dad. A godly father is the unseen spiritual submarine who lurks below the surface of every activity of his child's life. A man who has put on the full armor of God and goes to warfare on his knees is a force to be reckoned with. We cannot be with our kids 24 hours a day, but through prayer, we have the ability to affect situations even when we're not physically present. You may be undetected, but that does not mean You're ineffective. 
hey, before you scoff at this, before you laugh it off, let me just ask you, have you prayed? Have you really, really prayed for your rebellious child? Notice in chapter 29, the priest was dressed to the hilt, but the right robes weren't enough. He needed oil. And likewise, it doesn't matter what righteous deeds a man might put on or how pure his mind and thoughts might become. He needs more than that to be a good dad. He needs to be anointed with the oil of the Holy Spirit. Good works and Bible knowledge, even strong love is important, but they don't always impress our kids. But here's what your kids can't deny. If your experience of God is real and authentic, and the power of the Holy Spirit is evident, it will capture your attention. It'll capture their attention. Dad, oftentimes your kids will overlook you, but it's far more difficult for them to overlook God. And this is why a dad filled with the Holy Spirit is going to be a much more effective dad. A couple of years ago, Zach and I, we were eating dinner at one of those pastor's conferences out in California. And we were seated at a table with several other pastors. When one of them asked Zach, Hey, what was it like being a pastor's kid? Well, I pretended not to listen. But trust me, I was hanging on every word. Zach said, it was real. We saw God working in our parents. We knew his parent power was real. Hey, I'm sure God has been just as real in other people's lives, and their kids failed to recognize his hand at work. Just because a kid rejects God doesn't mean his parents were hypocrites or failed to live out their faith. But I do think the best testimony we can provide our kids is a living witness of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Tim Dalrymple was a top gymnast at Stanford University before a broken neck ended his career. Tim had plenty of reasons to deny his Christian faith. But he had one big reason to hold on and to trust God. He writes this. It was the example of my father. I saw in his life something undeniably true I couldn't explain away. And this is why I say a man's best friend, certainly a father's best friend, is not his dog, not his army buddy, not his old teammate, or even his wife. It is the Holy Spirit. Men, if you want to be the priest in your home and stand in the gap for your kids, then you need the power and presence and peace of the Holy Spirit. Once a little girl posed a question to her mom, Mommy, if the stork brings us babies and if Santa Claus brings us presents and if Jesus gives us our daily bread, then why do we keep Daddy around? Well, I hope I've answered that question this morning. It's because every home needs a benevolent king who will lovingly lead his family. Every home needs a brave prophet who will speak the truth to his kids. And every home, most importantly, needs a faithful priest who will stand in the gap for his kids and his wife. Every child needs a dad who will stand in the gap. They need a man in their life with a heavenly calling to represent God to them and to intercede for them with God. A father's goal isn't just to pay the bills and take out the trash and mow the lawn. It's to reflect God. 
And that's what every father needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Might sound strange, but this Father's Day, as well as all my days, I'm praying God will pour out his oil upon me.